A number of people have said to me um, in the last year or two years or so um, that it feels really important now to be addressing social issues. Uh, um, and these are people, I think, particularly in the Dharma world, meditators, uh, perhaps really seeing how, um, and there have been changes, there have been events, there have been you know, real shifts, and it feels almost like a seismic shift happening in the Dharma world, that there's just more um, uh, awareness of the need to engage the practice of meditation, the practice of mindfulness um, in the world. And, um, and, um, and in, in preparing for this day, I, uh, and also just uh, in a, uh, exploring this in my life over the past number of years, I've... Um, I've uh, connected especially with uh, a few people who have, you know, really touched me with the way they're thinking, the way they're speaking and acting. And, um, and one of them is a woman named uh, Zenju Earthland Manuel. She's uh, a Zen priest who lives in California. She's um, black. Uh, lesbian, and and she's written a very wonderful book called The Way of Tenderness, um, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And I'm going to start with um, a quote from her. If we were to simply walk past the fires of racism, sexism, and so on, because illusions of separation exist within them. We may well be walking past one of the widest gateways to enlightenment. It is a misinterpretation to suppose that attending to the fires of our existence cannot lead us to experience the waters of peace. Profundity, in fact, resides in what we see in the world. Spiritual awakening arrives from our ordinary lives, our everyday, our everyday struggles with each other. It may even erupt from the fear and rage that we tiptoe around. The challenges of race, sexuality, and gender are the very things that the spiritual path to awakening requires us to tend to as aspirants to peace. So what she's addressing here is this tendency that people who are doing spiritual practices have to want to arrive at some place of uh, peace, well-being, um, inner 
happiness and so on. And, um, and that leads many people to uh, withdraw from activity in the world, to turn away, to say, you know, some people will say, that's all illusory. That's all, um, you know, it's, you know, the truth is, is within. And, and what she's saying is that we are, we carry within us these, um, these struggles, these realities, this pain. It's, if we try to avoid them, if we try to leave them behind, we're actually um, missing a great opportunity to, to deepen and to awaken through these, through encountering the fear, the rage, the grief, and so on. <clears throat> I said a, um, a few words when I began um, this afternoon about how mindfulness has used in many different ways uh, the word mindfulness and um, and the teachings on mindfulness are given in many different ways and um, uh, and and they're sometimes taught disconnected from the ethical teachings uh, within which they are actually embedded in the in the Buddhist teachings. Um, there are actually uh, three aspects of the path, you know, in the sort of the basic template which uh, contains, you know, of, of the Theravada school, which kind of from which all different kinds of teachings and practices emerge. But this basic template has a path uh, which is described as in eight parts, eight the eightfold path, and and these these eight aspects of the path are are grouped in three different aspects. Um, so one of them is meditation, and so mindfulness is falls into that group of of um, teachings and practices, and and one of them is um, wisdom. So wisdom is is what develops through the practices. We we develop um, wisdom and insight uh, into the nature of who we are, what we are. And the third is ethics, and um, and these ethical teachings are um, are usually when teachings are 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 given to you know somebody a student who comes and and engages in the practice. You know usually they're they're given these ethical teachings as a foundation in w- with which to practice, and um, and the e- and ethics I you know. Ethics are um, are a foundation from which we act. We we act in our lives. We act in the world. Um, and um, I remember when I was uh, when I was a young woman, um, teenager, and, um, and a my early adulthood and growing up in very turbulent times. It was I was living in New York and it was 
the 60s, early 70s, a lot of change happening. And I had this, I had this sense of confusion. I was really deeply confused because there just seemed to be so many, like I had been brought up, you know, in a household which was kind of not particularly religious, but sort of traditional Jewish household, and um, and I uh, and then everything, you know, all the sort of structures seem to be under attack by my generation, and uh, authority being questioned, and and moral standards, and and uh, values, and so on. And I I just really was in state of uh, deep confusion and um, and I so I you know I I really um, kind of uh, connected with this commentary um, on the Buddha's ethical teachings by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Bodhi is a um, a Buddhist scholar and monk. Uh, he's he's also uh, a social activist in his way. He's formed a uh, an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, and um, and um, and he stated that and he he's compiled um, the Buddha's teachings on ethics in a, in a in a book. Um, and and written commentaries on on the uh, the 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 Buddhist teachings from the the oldest uh, canon of teachings, the Theravada. So these are this might sound uh, you know this might not be information you need, but I you know I'm just going to put it out that the Pali canon is is uh, so the the teachings that are in the Pali language. Are connected to the Theravada school, which is the oldest tradition, and then there are uh, Sanskrit teachings, which are from the Mahayana, and then the, the Tibetan are are even later than that. So, uh, so there are different streams of Buddhism which have emerged, and they all really are, you know, there's the beautiful, um, wonderful iterations of teachings and um, developments of the teaching, but um, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, compiled these Pali, uh, the teachings from the Pali canon, and um, and he stated that <clears throat> the Buddha holds that the validity of moral distinctions is not something decided by human beings. So it, he says it's built into the fabric of the cosmos. So that that I think would have really spoken to me when I was you know in my late teens and early 20s and and wondering everybody you know people say you know doesn't matter what you do you could steal from corporations you can you know do what you want sexually and uh, there's no you know it doesn't matter nothing matters um, and uh, I think that might have kind of gotten my interest if I had heard that at that time um, that 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 we and and, and even Abhikkhu Bodha said that this doesn't need to be actually even there's not even the the need for a Buddha to 
declare this that 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 this is so embedded that um, that these ethics these moral distinctions it, are so embedded in the fabric of the cosmos and and um, and he taught that the basic basis of ethics are rooted in our own experience of suffering versus freedom from suffering so and um, uh, and he uh, uh, there's this one story in which he's walking with um, his son Rahula who uh, when when he became you know a young man he joined the order of monastics who were um, living and and receiving teachings from the Buddha and and he took a walk with him and said you know Rahula um, before you think or you know, use your mind to plan something. Um, not thoughts to just come into our minds; those are those we don't control. But we can use our minds intentionally to plan and you know decide and so on. But before you think or speak or or act, you know, ask yourself: Is this going to cause suffering to myself or to somebody else? And um, and then. And if it doesn't, if the answer is no, go ahead, do it. If it's not, if, it, if the answer is yes, don't do it. Refrain. And then in the midst of thinking, speaking, acting, stop. Inquire. Ask yourself, is this causing harm to myself? Is it creating suffering for myself or another person or another being? If, it, if the answer is no... Continue. If it's, the answer is yes, stop. And and the <clears throat> and then after you've done something, after you've said something or used your mind to do something uh, in a certain way intentionally, again ask yourself: Did this cause harm to myself or not? If it did, try to repair it, make reparations. If if it did not, then okay, you can do it again. Um, and what the Buddha was really honing there is an awareness, really bringing a, a kind of a, a deeper uh, exploration of what are our intentions. Because in the Buddha's teaching on ethics, it's really... It's really our intentions. What is our intentions that, that's at the heart of, of um, how we discern whether something is morally um, good or morally wrong. <clears throat> um, similarly, there's this discourse uh, to the this people who lived in, in a town called um, Kalama. Actually, I don't think the town was called Kalama. I think the people were called Kalamas, but the town was called something a little bit longer. I can't remember what. Um, but, um, but it was a crossroads. The, the town where, they li- where the Kalamas lived were, uh, was a crossroads, and there were many spiritual teachers which were coming in and, you know, and teaching and then going on. And, 
and each one, you know, declared that the others were all wrong and theirs were right. Their their teachings were the correct ones, and and they were confused. I really related to the Kalamas, you know, because you know this confused kid that I was, uh, uh, and they were confused, and they said. Um, they said, you know, how do we know? How do we know uh, what's right and what's wrong? And um, and the Buddha said, look to your experience. Look to your own experience. So when you are overcome, or when you see somebody who is overcome with greed, hatred, and delusion, is it for their welfare or for their harm? So, so we can ask ourselves, well, what's motivating me when I think about doing this or doing that? Is it greed? Is it hatred? Is it delusion? Or is it kindness? Is it generosity? Is it... Is it um, a feeling of love and connection and wanting to, uh, to reach out and support other beings, other human beings, other, other non-human beings, and so on? So, so in this way, you know, intention, what's motivating us, what's behind what we do, is seen as as key and and the whole idea of relativism that is so um, uh, I think it's present it's present you know like well you know that's their bag it's you know it's okay you know it's that's the way they they do it well is it causing harm is it causing Harm to somebody? Is it causing pain and suffering? You know, what's what's behind that? Is it, you know, is it something that's being done to keep down, you know, and oppress and exploit people? Is it something that's being done to control, to control women's bodies, to control, you know, um, uh, a certain population within a society and keep them down. So so it's um, I, th- I think I think this this having this kind of uh, way of discernment, this these these tools for discernment is very is very helpful. <clears throat> when we when we begin our practice um, and we begin to meditate and we begin to to see within ourselves these energies of greed, hatred, and delusion and how they cause us suffering um, that's you know that's that's the work right and and the the way that I teach and the way that you know the teachers ha- that I really have connected with have have taught how to work with these these energies of um, you know that 
lead to suffering is is to actually not reject them not reject them or or push them away because they're they are they're just their energies that are within us as human beings but to actually give space to to know what they are to to know their nature and to not be afraid of them to not feel we need to reject or repress them and in but no, also not being driven by them so that's you know that's really important mm-hmm. so we don't let them drive us because at a certain point you know we we've arrived at the wisdom of recognizing if i keep on just being driven by greed or driven by anger or you know um or my delusion about uh and delusion takes all kinds of forms. Um, can be ideas, opinions, ideologies about things. Um, can be confusion. If I just let it drive me, well, I know from experience that road leads to suffering. You know. Uh, if I give space to the that energy of greed, and I and I become intimate with it and open to it, I find that at the root of it, there's really a wanting to be happy, wanting somehow to be satisfied, to be content, to, be, to have some sense of well-being. And so when I give space to that energy of greed, hatred, delusion, and allow it to just be known in that space of awareness, that space of <clears throat> compassion, I can allow it to dissipate, allow it to just uh, to kind of move through and and in that space I I discover that um, there's presence and there's um, there's there's non-drivenness there's non-drivenness it um, There's a, a quote from Earthman Manuel I'm looking for here. Yeah, she talks about tenderness and and um, that that tenderness is I think what I'm really connecting, what I'm pointing to when I say there's that moment when we um, open to, you know, the pain, 
because greed, hatred, and delusion are painful. So when we open to the pain within us, we allow them to be known and they, they move on. And there's that moment of tenderness, and she talks about this. When I turned toward the hurt in silence, so when she's talking about hurt now, she's talking about facing the hurt that as a black woman, as a, uh, a woman who uh, loves other women in her sexuality, that, 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 this, that she's experienced hurt and judgment in her life. And, um, and so her awakening, part of her awakening was to turn toward that and acknowledge it. When I turned toward the hurt in the silence, I entered a kind of tenderness that was not sore, not wounded, but rather powerfully present. I sat up straight. The silence had tilled hard ground into soft soil. I sunk deep into the soft ground where the source of life was revealed, wordless, nameless, without form, completely indescribable. And then, I dare to say it, I was completely tender. To ease below the surface of my embodiment, my face, my flesh, my skin, my name, I needed to first see it reflected back at me. I had to look at it long enough to see the soft patches, the openings, the soft, tender ground. Would I survive the namelessness without my body, without my heart? while engaging the beautiful floral exterior of my life. Fear and caution were attempting to, to shut down the experience of uncoupling my heart from mistreatment and discrimination, from the disregard, hurt, and separation that I experienced and accepted as my one-sided life. I was going back to the moment before I was born, when I was connected to something other than my parents or my people. <clears throat> As we, um, and, and Earthland Manual is kind of pointing to this as as we look at the suffering within us this, the, the the different uh, formations the habits of suffering that we hold that we carry that drive us we recognize that they they're that they're not intrinsic that the the habits of suffering 
one of the very important insights, the habits of suffering, the habits of greed, habits of anger, they're not intrinsic to us. They're, they're, they're coming from causes and conditions. They're coming from what we were taught, what we experienced, how we were hurt, uh, how we were educated. So, so we've taken them on, and, and we've taken them on perhaps because, you know, as I mentioned, we're, tr we're trying to find our way. We're trying to find some way to, to be well in this world, to feel, to feel a sense of well-being and, and happiness in this world. But they're, they're not working for us. <laughs> and so, you know, when we find some spiritual teaching that kind of calls us and kind of, you know, we can, we begin to home in on it, like, oh yeah, there's something, that's, that's the direction of, of the truth for me, that's, that's the direction of peace, that's the direction of authenticity, of, of allowing me, me to be my true self, um, then we begin to um, to recognize that um, you know these causes and conditions of our lives have have formed us, and that something new can emerge, and we don't have to 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 continue. You know, the being being shaped, being driven by those causes, and. And we recognize that, that there are many causes, our, fam our families, our society, and so on. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, we're looking, as, as we look and we recognize suffering within ourselves, and also goodness and awareness and awakeness within ourselves, we, we also begin to see it in others, and the Buddha uses this expression um, in in one of his uh, discourses, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. That we he instructs us to observe internally and externally, internally and externally. So we're we're looking at ourselves, we're looking at our own hearts and minds and bodies, and and understanding, you know, uh, and discovering what we are and the nature of what we are. And at the same time, we can also be looking at others and saying, yeah, I see that person is suffering. That person is suffering from fear. That person is suffering from anger. I see that. I can see the generosity of that person. I can see their love. I can see their compassion. I found, found, I found for myself that that as I began to mature in my practice and really, you know, see and open to these realities in myself and really know them, that I began to feel less like, you know, I was this um, being in a world uh, which was somehow um, disconnected from me, I began to feel more and more deeply my 
my human connections and my commonalities and my shared uh, life with the, the whole world, human and non-human. And, um, and so internally and externally, we, we can begin to see that other people as well are shaped by social forces, uh, just as we were. I mean, one of the things that I, I really um, connect with is, you know, how, how limiting as a young woman it felt to me to be defined by my appearance. You know, I, you know, I, I, was, I was told, you know, oh, you're such a pretty girl. You know, I was told that when I was a little girl. You're, oh, you're so pretty. And that became my value, you know, that I was pretty I was you know and and um, and I and then as I began to understand how limiting that had been for me and how stultifying I had great compassion for you know other girls other women uh, began to really actually think wow it's really lucky if you're not so pretty, you know, that maybe your other qualities are going to be recognized a little bit earlier on. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, so just, um, that's just an example of how internally and externally we can really, you know, from our own experience, begin to see um, and really feel the world around us, and um, and um, and David Loy, uh, who's a, uh, a Zen teacher and very um, in the in the states and very active in uh, kind of social engagement, social application. Uh, justice at application of, the, of Dharma teaching. He said that we should, you know, think about, you know, these, these energies of greed, hatred, and delusion which create suffering. We should think about how we can perhaps see that they're institutionalized in the social structures around us. And so, you know, perhaps we can see, you know, consumerism you know, there's a great big billboard uh, just on DeCary and Sherbrooke, just a couple of blocks from here, and it always have has a David Bitten ad for jeans, and you know, and this kind of uh, these these exaggeratedly sexual sexualized, you know, young men and women who, you know, like this becomes the model of what people. Are supposed to look like, and if you know, and and this push to consume to become, you know, part of this consumer machine, right? Uh, to become drawn into this, that this that this becomes uh, how we are um, labeled. You know, we're labeled as consumers. Right? You 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 hear the word consumer much more than you hear the word citizen. You know, like, 
we're referred to as consumers much more than we're referred to as citizens. And that's very interesting, I think. So, so, and consumerism, you know, is connected to so many issues. Uh, I mean, not only is it a source of suffering in that we keep buying stuff that we don't need because we think it makes, it's going to make us happy and it doesn't, and then we just have a, a whole lot of stuff, but it's connected to pollution, it's connected to climate change, it's connected to exploitation, uh, people being used to create cheap stuff that we fill our houses with, um, corporate greed, uh, you know, corporation has its, its own, its, its, its primary motivation is is to enrich shareholders. So, so, uh, so greed is really built into our our culture, and hatred, systemic racism, endemic tribalism, one group against another group, war, our prison system oppressing marginalized people. And um, and delusion. Uh, David Loy thinks that the media sees the media as a as a um, kind of a an, a main perpetuator of delusions in our uh, in our society. You know that the delusion that we need to be in a certain way and. Uh, and and interpreting I- interpreting uh, world, you know, events in in our in our society according to certain ideologies and and so on. So seeing only according to our assumptions that could be like letting our assumptions, you know, interpret the world for us our our habitual assumptions about things that that could be a way that we understand delusion. Um, I'll read you a, uh, a quote from David Loy. An important part of genuine education is realizing that many of the things we think are natural and inevitable and therefore should accept are in fact conditioned and therefore can be changed. The world doesn't need to be the way it is. There are other possibilities. The present role of the media is to foreclose most of those possibilities by confining public awareness and discussion within narrow limits. Within, with few exceptions, the world's developed or economized societies are now dominated by a power elite composed of governments and large corporations, including the major media. People move seamlessly from each of these institutions to the other because there is little difference in their worldview or goals, primarily economic expansion. It's important to realize that we are not being manipulated by a clever group of powerful people who benefit from manipulating us. Rather, we are being manipulated by a deluded group 
of powerful people who think they benefited from it because they buy into the basic illusion that their own well-being is separate from that of other people. They too are victims of their own propaganda, caught up in the webs of collective delusion that include virtually all of us. As the Viennese satirist Karl Krauss once said, how do wars begin? Politicians tell lies to journalists, then believe what they read in the newspapers. The same applies to shared fantasies, such as the necessity of consumerism and perpetual economic growth, and collective repressions, such as denial of impending eco-catastrophe. So, it's important that we we take this in, it's important that we find ways to speak about what we see, what we understand, and it's important that we find ways of being that are not just dictated to us in these ways. One of the one of the things that I found as a as a young person, I, as an activist, I, w- I was active in the, you know, the different uh, uh, issues of the of the day, um, in the sixties and seventies, um, and um, and I I found that there was what I was really disturbing how uh, how much anger there was I. I I, I really felt that. I felt that, you know, there was the, that, that person, that group of people were the, you know, the ones who were to blame for this war, this injustice, and, and, and they were the enemy. And, um, and somehow, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, I just, I, I, I didn't hold with me, and I, uh, I found myself... Um, I guess tending toward a more spiritual route. Um, so can we look at social issues, you know, without creating an enemy? Can we look at social issues as that, as David Loy said, you know, that they're they're also suffering from the delusion that they think that they're benefiting from. Uh, exploiting other people. And and this, I think the way, finding the way to do that is to, to, to be that open space that I talked about in the meditation and that, um, that Thich Nhat Hanh talked about, you know, when he said, can we listen to the cries of the earth? Zenju Ursula Manuel puts it this way. She's um, she's referring. Uh, I, just the quote um, kind of dives in, but uh, she uses the expression 
living without anything our hearts. In other words, without identifying as this or that. So when we say living without anything our hearts, we do not mean emptiness in the sense of zero, but rather that the heart remains clear of notions and ideas about others or about anything in life. Emptiness refers to an open and uncluttered heart with regard to nature or form. So we need to wake up to our perceptions. We need to wake up to our assumptions. We need to wake up to the ways that we identify. We need, in, in, you know, I think that we need, instead of blaming, we need to become interested and, and curious and engaged with all kinds of people. So, um, so I want to give space for us to also reflect together on this, and um, and I know that I've I've brought in a lot of different ideas in different ways. Um, I've brought in the idea of uh, you know that somehow we can discern you know an ethic that can, you know, really be a foundation of, you know, that ethic is, is this causing suffering? Is this causing harm to myself or others? And that when we do our practice and we look inward and we see the causes of suffering in ourselves, that we engage with them in a way that's not repressing, that's not pushing away, that's not rejecting of those energies, but is rather um, recognizing that at the source, at the, at the uh, kind of behind those energies, there's, there's a seeking in some way to find <coughs> happiness. And, and, and Zenju, uh, Earthland Manual, calls that process of you know of looking deeply below the hurt below the suffering finding that place of tenderness recognizing that that place of tenderness is a place within each one of us within each human being and can we engage in our in our justice making in our peacemaking in our outreach in our seeking for a better world, can we engage in that spirit uh, without making an enemy, without, um, without, you know, rejecting? Um, um, yeah, just let me um, read briefly this little conversation between Sharon Salzberg, who's a an insight, one of the uh, early. This insight teachers, one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and Rev- Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who is a, um, a Zen priest, um, black woman living in uh, California, uh, and very she's written she's co-written a book with um, Lama Rod Willi- Lod Owens called. Um, 
Rod Owens, Lama Rod Owens, <laughs> called um, Radical Dharma. It's a very interesting book. Um, so, so Sharon Salzberg is talking about this man named uh, Miles Horton, who was the founder of the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, which was a kind of training ground for um, civil rights protest protesters, um, and later for people beginning the environmental movement. And Sharon asked um, uh, Miles what he did to develop resilience. And he said, um, I look at the mountains. I sit and look at the mountains. And then, uh, and then Miles told this story later to Sharon about, um, he knew, uh, Miles knew um, Martin Luther King. And he said, Martin Luther King used to say to me all the time, you've got to love everybody. And I used to say, no, I don't. I only have to love the people who are worth loving. And King would laugh and laugh and say, nope, you've got to love everybody. And so, so Sharon says, you know, um, what, what in the world could it mean to love everybody, to love somebody you don't actually like, that you're going to fight, you're going to protest against? And um, an angel said, uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, um, you don't have to like anybody at all. People always tease me about this. I hardly like anybody. But I love everyone, and that is possible. In fact, it's the very thing that bridges the spiritual life and the activist life. When I came to Buddhist practice, I thought that when people were at the pinnacle of their practice, they would see the need to respond to the problems in the world. Isn't that what would happen once you get there, wherever there is? But that wasn't my experience, so I switched my focus to the activists. They were trying to change the world, and I, and I felt that I could support them with meditation and awareness practices. And then, and then they could do it more effectively. And what I ran into, of course, with, was that they pretty much didn't love anyone. So love is what I focused on because in social justice work, the only option is loving everyone. Otherwise, there is no path to real change. Whether we're leaning toward the spiritual community or the activist community, what we need is the combination of a mind that wants to change the world and a mind that is steady, clear-seeing, and seeks change from a place of love rather than from a place of anger. It's important not to get stuck in your own views. Even if you think yours is the right way, there's always somebody else who has another way. Then you're in an irreconcilable conflict that doesn't get resolved, except, I think, through love. King and Gandhi understood that everyone holds some aspect of the truth. So when you're in the pursuit of social justice, it becomes very difficult to hold on to your own idea of the truth. You'd think that the more you're in pursuit of justice, the more you'd know what's right, but it's actually the opposite. Happiness and suffering, right and wrong, like and dislike, these are the paradoxes that exist for all of us, balancing the inner life and the outer life. We think it's one or the other. Either we like and agree with people, or we're against them and we have to hate them. The question is, how is, do we exist in the space 
that holds both of these dualities at once. So that's our question. What do you think? It's in uh, the Lion's Roar, uh, Lion, the Lion's Roar magazine. Yeah, it's you can find it online. Yeah, uh, but I'll I'll send it to you. Just send me an email. Yeah. So a- anyway, what I'm I'd really like to hear your thoughts, your responses, your concerns, <coughs> questions, as you know, on any aspect of what what we've been speaking about. What I've been speaking about, I've been doing all the speaking. <laughs> yes, Danielle. So when you talk about intention, um, I guess what I, I struggle with is there's the obvious, like, you know, good intention and not harming, um, so it cause suffering. But I think a lot of things are unintentional, right? Like colonization and all, all the things that we do for people, we know the way. Um, I find that harder to discern. Um, when you can be good intention and still be doing harm. Yeah. So how do you work through that? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think just, you know, seeing that it's it's really not, you know, so clear. You know, it's not it's not this or that. Uh like, yeah, there was a lot of greed in colonization, for sure. Um, there was a lot of delusion, blindness, not seeing you know, the civilizations that were already there and, you know, assuming that, you know, the people were, you know, uncivilized. Uh, and there were also good intentions, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very human activity to explore, to discover, to go beyond the boundaries of what we know, to travel, to, you know, and that's what these people were doing. And then the the missionaries probably thought that they were you know doing very good in, in uh, you know bringing all of what they brought to uh, and and colonization you know has happened you know in many ways all over the world so it's and yet there's been a great great harm that's been done and and uh, you know that carries on through generations so I think that. Um, you know, we we need to arrive at this moment, and 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 take responsibility in you know, in this moment for where we are. That's that's how I understand it. I don't certainly don't have answers, but but um, you know whether it's you know, how do how do we move on from here? What needs what needs to be done to to move on in a more wholesome way? Yeah, I guess that it's repeated in many ways, right? I mean, like we can take colonization and put that, you know, the past and history, and then we do it in how we deal with people living in poverty now, or you know, doing residential schools. Like it, there's so many things that were well intentioned, and I feel that, often me personally, I feel like I can still replicate that without um, intending or being aware, and and yet all coming from good intention. Um, right. Yeah. The road to hell is paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that's 
It's a very true saying. But you know, one of the things that's very true, I think, and consistently true, about these examples that you're giving is that there was, you know, someone who had maybe, you know, some good intentions, maybe some other intentions that were not so good, but but there was an imposition on people of their ideas, right? They weren't asked, they, they didn't ask, you know, you know, like, we think this residential school idea, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, should we take your kids? And, uh, you know, it was, you know, you take, we're taking your kids, you know, and, um, yeah, and policies around poverty that are made, are they, are they really made in consultation with the people who are experiencing them, experiencing that, that situation. Uh, so I think that's part of it is, you know, like, can there be inquiry, dialogue, respect that the people who are, you know, in a certain context, you know, have perspectives, have a voice. I think when we meditate and when we practice and when we, the longer we do it, the more we see how the mind works and how the thoughts are and how the habits become and you know, and you see how much um, practice it takes to free oneself from delusional things, things that are not as we think they are, because the power of the ego that, or, or the egoic patterns, or the habitual patterns we have, we believe in as truths. I mean, when you see that in yourself, and you work with things, and like wanting to be free of certain habits that just keep arising and arising, and sometimes it goes well, and other times, you know, not. So, you, just taking that and looking at the at the world at large, this is if you're a person who's investigating and you're seeing that most of the world is asleep. Like they don't know that they're being driven by, you know, habits of of racism and all these things. Not that <clears throat> that condones it, but you can. It somehow I totally understand that quote. I don't like them, but I have to love them because. The loving is that understanding of how, why they are the way they are. And that doesn't mean I like it, but, but it's like they're asleep. They don't know. They haven't, they, they're not aware of, of, what the, of the pain they're causing. Or, you know, CEOs might believe that if they get, earn millions and millions more dollars every year that they will be happier, you know, in some deluded part of their mind. And, and they don't care if they... And they agree all those things. So how do you bring about change in a in a in a world where most people are not aware of these of what's really how the world really is and of what is causing their pain? How do you because as far as I can see, that's the way to real changing the world when people begin to really see that we you know, when you hurt yourself, you, you, they don't see the interconnection. They see them as separate, so they think what they get for themselves will benefit themselves, and they don't understand the whole intricate implication of, you know, the more rich there are, the more poor there are, the more crime there is, all of it interconnected. People don't see it. So how do you bring, then, these, this wisdom to, like, that's the only way to bring about change, but how is that possible? 
how can we reach? How can these? I mean, we're all sitting here. We're all we buy in, right? We're not likely all of us here. We're we're on board with with these values. But there's like people walking around who don't even contemplate for a second. They think that what they think is tr is true all the time, right? Poor people are poor because they don't work hard. Poor people are poor because they're lazy. You know all these things that you hear. So how do you reach? How do you change that? Are you asking me? How do we bring wisdom yeah. then to the to people? Yeah. Beyond uh, what you described, I think is really important. Not liking them, but loving them, because that reduces the demonizing of the other. Okay. I'm going to, there's just a, a quote by um, Zenju Earthland Manual that I didn't read because I uh, um, just had too much. But I, you know, and, and, and um, the quote is, only when I dropped the notion that I was the creator of my own peace or oneness or that I was powerful enough to change the world by acting to change others, did I experience the way of tenderness? Could you repeat it, please? <laughs> the way of tenderness. So, you remember what, you know, what that evokes, is that, that, that inner presence, that openness, open-heartedness. Um, when I dropped the notion that I was the creator of my own peace or oneness, or that I was powerful enough to change the world by acting to change others, only then did I experience the way of tenderness. So, so if we're not asking others to change, how, how can they see the damage that they're doing? If, yeah, it seems to me activism is pointing, pointing out the harm that people are doing, even if it's not, if it's not conscious. And whether we do it with, uh, well, obviously anger is not going to do it because it, it just it, it, it reinforces positions, but. It, it seems to me you have to point out the harm that is that is being done, whether it's putting pipelines across uh, across oceans or across virgin forests, or you know overfishing, killing whales, or poverty, whatever. You have to point out that this is not a good thing, uh, and hope to change people's mind. I, I don't understand that quote. Mm -hmm. It a little bit more in the lines of Gandhi, be the change that you want to see. Although I know what you're saying. I mean, we have any day you could choose one of hundreds of great causes to challenge. And I think what seems to be happening is that we become more and more polarized. And is it because we're all pointing fingers at each other rather than trying to love each other? I mean, that sounds so by 
don't know, protesting or signing another petition, are we creating solutions or are we just putting blame? You know, like, I, I don't know, there's just so many layers of how you can approach a problem. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's enormous. And anyway, it's just something I yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a break in about 10 minutes. Just want to let people know. So, you know, if you're hungry or whatever, uh, have, want, need some tea, uh, we'll, we'll be able to. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, I experienced relief when I heard that, when you read that quote. Um, I'm not sure why. It kind of is like, it's like, oh, okay, you know, you can't, you can't change people no matter how hard you try. So you can be yourself and you can. Um, follow your own joy, I find. And it reminds me of this part of this book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, where she's talking about people trying to find their creativity. And she says, well, if you come to me and you say, I have this great project because I really want to change things and change people and change, or, or, I really want to do this for other people to save, I don't know, this problem, uh, or like, to save people in, in difficulty, and I'll say to them, oh, Please don't. Like, and just in the sense of, really, if you follow what's going to bring you really deep joy, I think that's, that speaks to me a lot more. And I think that you will end up changing the world, even if it takes time. Um, I think also being with yourself, recognizing your vulnerability, you can recognize the vulnerability of the others. Sometimes people have violent action, words, but they're hiding your vulnerability behind. And if you, if we can recognize that, we can acknowledge this instead of pointing out the bad thing. You're just showing up the sweet spot in some kind of way. And I think that's the way change can happen slowly but surely. That's the way I feel. So, so when you're with yourself, you can easily, more easily see on the, the others, inside the others. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm scratching the surface of this currently to myself, but it reflects what all of you were saying is that, um, you know, when I'm working with people who are very marginalized or, or poor, and I think, you know, why can't everyone in their fancy cars and big houses just help more? Um, and then that can frustrate me and lead me to sort of despair. Um, and I, what I'm leaning into is the fact that it's like just the act of my showing compassion or love to that one person. And if I can focus on that relationship um, and then not pointing it to like, you people should be doing that because I can I can control this interaction um, you know and so it's a drop in the ocean yes but but it leads to peace for me or it leads to peace for them um, and perhaps someone might see that and say oh well maybe I can do this but it's a bite-sized chunk that then leaves me feel like I can do that um, because really I can't change the world and I feel like that's what's reflected in that is like instead of trying to change others, I just change what I can change by making that teeny baby step towards that love or compassion. So yeah, and I think that one of the things that people discover when they begin 
uh, mindfulness practice and meditation practice and you know the Dharma practicing the Dharma is that it does impact I, I mean it there are these ripple this ripple effect you know we are we are more um, generous we are kinder we are less reactive we are more compassionate uh, it just you know and it does it does make a difference um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can still work on ourselves and build compassion, but I I think at the same time, it seems to me that's what activism is. Mm -hmm. You have to point out the damage that's being done and maybe not expect others to change, but to change their habits, to change their their impact on on, on the world. this is the essence yeah. of activism. Yeah, well, I think you know? it's you know speaking the truth. It's speaking the truth of what we see, speaking the truth of what we feel, and and uh, you know, I mean, you see, you see a clear-cut forest, and you know, and and it, and so you you know you express. The, the the pain of that, the loss of that whole ecosystem, or whatever it is, you know, uh, I think it's that we can speak, we can speak the truth of what we see. Yeah. Yesterday, I had the um, <coughs> pleasure of uh, sitting in uh, on a meeting at Concordia of Sustainable Concordia, it's called, and each one of the students there very. I don't know, it's bubbly and happy and go-getting. And they had different projects. For example, one of the projects was to inform the university establishment that the investments they were putting into were really bad because it was the fossil fuel industry. So they were assembling this project to bring it to their attention in a very calm way, very spiritual way. It happened to be in a very building where they had a meditation uh, uh, area in the basement. Uh, and I said, this is what we have to do. You know, we, we can sit around talking about how we feel, and what, we, what, we, what the society is all about, but until we take a specific action, a, a small action, of being on the little committee, then we'll never get anywhere. And these kids of 20, 22 years old, they know what they're doing. They are an example to us all. It's for over 20 years old. <laughs> and I was very impressed with them. I think that we, we cannot dissociate ourselves from each other, whether we have good or bad intentions, or does that matter? It's like uh, it's, we, we are interconnected. And I like that code that you used where you said that uh, ethics is, uh, is there. It's just part of me, part of you, part of all of us, right? And uh, the fact that we are aware of, uh, of that, that's the reason why we still have a planet. In my point of view, otherwise, there would have been people that have pushed the button a long time ago. So I'm very positive, but I still think that that's the reason why, the reason that uh, we can uh, exchange with others and. Uh, um, also 
have the ability to listen to like someone else has to say. In the exchange, I learned that uh, you understand something that I don't, and I do. So we kind of uh, uh, give steps forward. Sometimes we go backwards, but we still have. Uh, so, so my responsibility is also ours. We, I, I don't think we can detach ourselves to to our history or DNA or we we have it. We we carry it with with us. So thank you. Thank you for that uh, shared reflection and um, we'll take a, a little break now. <laughs>